And welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the subdivision of the overall corporation that is Let Me Tell You Something. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me as always is your other co-host, Simon Cross. Have I have I been meant to be filing tax returns? Oh, HMRC can have my pants down. You had one job, Simon. Get the furnace going. Get the furnace going. <laughs> Every other job you've tried. <laughs> Wow. Oh, that's been in there. That's been in there. <laughs> At least when I was trying to get you to destroy stuff, it would make sense. But you can't even destroy anything. <laughs> but what you can do is on every other edition of Match of the Week, you can pick the match that we're going to discuss. And so this was your pick today. What are we watching today, Simon? Or what have we watched for the purposes of today's recording? Uh, we have watched... A load of big, sweaty, leather-clad men watch some professional wrestling as we're at Road Wild 1998, watching the WCW Cruiserweight Championship match between the challenger, Juventud Guerrero, and uh, the champion, not an American, Chris Jericho, with special guest referee, the Iceman, Dean Malenko. Famously, when... Chris Jericho came to WWE a year or so after this match and immediately set his sights on The Rock. One of the first insults that The Rock had in response to him was, do you think you impressed The Rock because a year ago you were down south beating up on someone called Hooventude? <laughs> See, only The Rock can get away with stuff like that. I don't know if that was before or after Hooventude Guerrero's whole gimmick became imitating The Rock. I, I don't know which one's begat the other. I can absolutely see like Vince Russo going, I know what we'll do to capitalise on this. Because who would go, finally the juice has returned, or whatever. And I think he would do the people's elbow. I was going to say, don't say finally the juice has returned in the late 90s. Jesus. One of the reasons you said you picked the match is that you wanted to see some 98 Jericho, which was essentially the creation of the larger-than-life Chris Jericho character that propelled him eventually to the WWE and superstardom, and even to this day, is still a prominent figure on national TV. I'd always loved Chris Jericho's rise in WCW in 98 because it almost perfectly synced in with me finally getting to watch wrestling regularly. If you read my book, which Simon has yet to do, I say that one of the things I was really lucky with was that just when the Attitude Era really took off and suddenly wrestling became the hottest thing culturally in late 97, early 98, and with Mike Tyson appearance and everything, that was when we were finally able to get Sky in my house because Sky dropped the £100 installation charge, which is what they always used to charge you. What? To get uh, Sky. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. What? Yeah. You used to have to pay £100 for them to come in and install the satellite dish, and then you would pay. Jesus. And this is 98. You know, you think 20, almost 25 years now of of inflation since then, what £100 would Mm. mean now. Well, it's less. Anecdotally, I believe it's less than that now. Mm. Mm. I think they realise, like, stupid idea. There was driving. So you did see a sudden increase in. Sky ownership. Also, parents clearly about to start going through a divorce, so it's about uh, can we pay off the kids for their happiness? <laughs> There's a peek behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to therapy. Signs that the parents are getting a divorce. 
suddenly an uptick in the quality of your entertainment system. It's just... <laughs> hey, look, it's a Blu-ray player. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so I remember the very first Nitro I saw was the Nitro after Starcade 97 that I saw, like, on the TNT channel. But one of the very first matches, maybe the very first match on that, because I remember the first Raw I saw started with Stone Cold Steve Austin beating up Gold Dust dressed up as the New Year's baby and throwing him in a portaloo. And the first thing I remember seeing on Nitro was Kurt Hennig trying to recover from losing the US title to Diamond Dallas Page and beating Chris Jericho in a match. And Chris Jericho at this point was on a bit of a losing streak, it seemed. He'd lost the Cruiserweight title a few months earlier to Eddie Guerrero. And he was sort of a semi-jobber to the stars, almost, in that regard. Like, he worked in the Cruiserweight division, but he would pick up wins and losses in the Cruiserweight division. Traded the belt with Alex Wright, you know. But he hadn't really got over with the crowd as a plucky babyface. And after the match finished, he started smashing the ring post with the steel chair. And saying, I'm sick of this happening to me. And then a few weeks later, he turns on Rey Mysterio, wins the Cruiserweight Championship from him at Sold Out, and starts his heel run. And this is where he basically goes through the entirety of the Cruiserweight division. I think a lot of people have compared the the ascent, and I think it is a fair comparison, of Dr. Britt Baker, DMD, to a very similar thing with Chris Jericho, that there's the humour aspect to it, but the, underneath it, they're, they're, they're a bit, uh, they are an aggressive hypocritical figure the the initial start as a baby face as well because dear yeah. uh, brit baker started out as a face on dynamite and also giving her a lackey similar to chris jericho getting ralphus if i had to pick one of the lackeys i'd pick rebel over ralphus and then he basically tore a path through the cruiserweight division and he was collecting trophies along the way so he he attacked Rey mysterio with a toolbox after he won the cruiserweight title from him affected his knee sent him packing then the next month, he wrestled Juventu Guerrera at Super Brawl in a title versus mask match. Won the mask from him and started walking around with the mask all the time. And Juventu Guerrera was sort of reinvented, I guess, then as a pretty boy baby face. Then he beat Dean Malenko. And Dean Malenko was then excoriated by Mean Gene Oakland for being a loser and walked away. Right. And hadn't been seen since. I think he beat Prince Iakia after that. And he was a, he was a, gaining trophies as he went along. I think he stole like a necklace from Prince Iakia. And he did such an amazing job for two months taunting Dean Malenko. And Dean Malenko was not on screen. And he was mocking him and mocking his father, his dead father, and all sorts of stuff in the time in between. And Dean Malenko wasn't around to say anything. And then you get Slamboree. The idea is that Chris Jericho was basically owning the Cruiserweight division at this point. And they had never been really defined as such. Like one man against an entire division. And that's really what it was at this time. Because there was no really clear heels within the Cruiserweight division outside of Eddie Guerrero and that now Chris Jericho. Other than that, it was like mm. flying in of international talents like Ultimo Dragon or Jushin Thunder Liger. And some, uh, maybe Super Callow's a f- heel, but it doesn't really matter from episode to episode. Psychosis maybe against Rey Mysterio, but other times not really. So it was just like a division of wrestlers, much like how the Cruiserweight division very often is. And this was the first time where like character and story... 
storyline was the building up and, and a specific character, but he helped get others over more. Yeah. In the process. It really is symbolized by what happens at Slamboree, where there's a 20-man cruiserweight battle royal to decide who will face Jericho later on in a, in a title match. And Jericho gets to announce all the other members of the battle royal. I've heard about this. Mocks each and every one of them as they come out. And, like, he's got a 6% chance of winning. I think when Lenny Lane came out, he said, like, this guy owes me a Dave Lee Roth uh, t-shirt or something. (laughs) The best one being Marty Jannetty comes out and he says, this guy's going to rock, rock till he drops, rock, rock till he can't stop Marty (laughs) Jannetty. Doesn't he do something with Villiano, like, four? And, like, he drops, like, a knee to the four or something like that. Yeah, and... uh, Silver King, he said if he gets 17 more wins, he'll be upgraded to Golden King. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Towards the end of the Battle Royal, and there's one figure there that's hung out a bit longer than you usually expect them to, which is Cyclope. And he's like a guy that you see on the roster. He'd been on the roster for so many of these Mexican, mostly Mexican stars, were so interchangeable and not really given any personality on WCW. And and it seemed like their idea was, well, the way we can give them personality is we have them take their mask off and then we can work with something. They were all, like, bundled together at one point in the LWO. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Bret Hart wasn't the only one to get a good uh, jibe in on El Dandy. (laughs) Jericho doubted El Dandy, but he didn't doubt that he would come first in a Lou Ferrigno lookalike competition. (laughs) his line. And so, at the end of it, it's down to Humberto Guerrero, who's, you know, basically the, the top, like, seen as the top face of the division at this point, without Mysterio, without Dimalenko. And then they shake hands, and and then Juventus jumps out of the ring. It's like, what the hell? Ciclope takes his mask off. It's Dimalenko. And it is the biggest response Dimalenko ever, ever got. And he does the old stone-cold stomp a mud hole on Chris Jericho in the corner, and it's just awesome. <laughs> but it was such a that was such a sign of how good Chris Jericho was at this point that he got a guy more over than they ever were in their career by them being off screen. Yeah, it's like incredible, especially for a man who had loads of ability but just never connected on a charismatic level. It's not like they didn't get responses from the crowd. One of the things I appreciate when you look back at those old Nitro crowds and WCW crowds was, you know, they liked their wrestling. And a good wrestling mm. match would get reactions from the crowd. They wouldn't sit on their hands like very often WWE crowds would do with the same sort of presentation. Yeah. Christian, and it's funny when we watched this match. What surprised me was how much of the Jericho character that we knew and we saw and we associate with him was still to develop. Mm. That when it came to the in-the-ring bell-to-bell stuff, he really wasn't that different to what he always was in WCW. And I think part of it is because, unfortunately with this one, it's the Sturgis crowd is such a um, non-wrestling crowd. It's as close to the... Yeah. close to The closest thing I've seen to it since then was when the WWE did those shows in Saudi Arabia. And whilst I think the people in the stands were really enjoying it, all the dignitaries and high-profile people... That had the fancy seats. You'd yeah. see them walking around and talking to each other on hard cam. And with little to no interest of what's in front of them. And that's kind of what the Sturgis crowd was, really. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, exactly. They were watching it because it's there, basically. Like, Whereas the Saudi thing, I reckon, was basically a business conference under the guise of a wrestling show, most likely. Yeah. 
Well, I think what it is is because the Roadwild concept, it was first called Hogwild at the very first show in 96, and then it was Roadwild for 97, 98, and 99 was the last one. And I, a lot of people have said it's just basically Eric Bischoff's a big Davidson petrol head. And yeah. so he used this event as an excuse to go to Sturgis himself and have a good time. We've often said, at least I have, that in many ways AEW Dynamite almost feels like what WCW Nitro might have evolved into if it had stayed on screen for the past 20 years. There are elements of classic Nitro that AEW seems to be picking up again and wants to pick up. One of which is the shows in unusual, unique locations. Obviously, they did that one on the Jericho Cruise. And that was quite similar to when WCW would do Spring Break, which was where they did their last Nitro. Wasn't one of the first... Was it the first fight for the Fallen? That was like in an amphitheater. Mm, mm. Yeah, and you've also got... I mean, Nitro's very first show was in the Mall of America. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but it was fun and and they did some bash of the beaches on literal beaches i always love that i mean i always have a as much as wrestlemania 9 kind of sucks as a presentation i've always thought it was one of the more fun ones when they did it just in a like a makeshift venue outside of caesar's palace in las vegas and everyone's dressed up in togas yeah they don't really try anything different now do they it's usually big nfl arena well, sometimes, to be fair, the sets are always interesting. Yeah. But if you go on hard cam, if you go just on the hard cam wrestling that's on the screen and how it's filmed and everything and presented... It just looks the same. It's, it's not changed, really, since sort of WrestleMania 23, really, I guess. Yeah, like, for example, is it next year or the year after? One of the next two WrestleManias is back at the AT&T. And... What from a hard cam perspective, there'll be precious little difference between that mm. and thirty two. You won't Yeah. They'll look incredibly similar. Yeah. The roster won't be that different either, or it won't feel that different anyway. Well I don't know. If they're all fit this time, that'd be lovely. Oh yeah, of course I forgot about that. That was the that was the because that was the WrestleMania first two that no one could go to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and like they're dropping like flies that yeah. that year. And so whilst it makes a fun visual and it gives it a unique look, and I do love that. Unfortunately, for this environment, it's not great. And, I mean, I haven't really watched any of those pay-per-views from start to finish. I've seen bits and bobs over the years, but I do recall reading reports that said, like, when Harlem Heat came out, they didn't necessarily get a very positive response in a, <laughs> in a different kind of way mm. to what they might usually want to get. And that it, outside of, like, Hulk Hogan showing up, there was next to no interest in what was on the screen. Well, also, this is the one where Jay Leno's in the main event. Yes, yes. Another petrol head. Another petrol head. I think that's basically all that he's ever spent his money on. <laughs> this is He's a very strange man. <laughs> Why not? I mean, it keeps him happy. keeps him out of trouble. Yeah. I don't know about out of trouble. Depends who you ask. In an unfortunate way, for this to be sort of the end of Chris Jericho's character's storyline in, in the Cruiserweight division, it is quite a shame. Because it is his ultimate comeuppance against the two people. He he hadn't a comeuppance the month before against Rey Mysterio, who made his big comeback Mm. and won the title from Jericho. And then Jericho, because that was when he was doing his conspiracy victim shtick, and he won the title back through like a a sub clause in the in the rule book (laughs) that he kept referring to again, James J. Dillon out to uh, to help him with. The atmosphere isn't Jericho's fault, but he does try and remedy it quite well. He comes out dressed like, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, like every housewife in um, 
certain certain videos on the internet. No, what I thought that was, I realized that it's only a second to realize it. Is the I wonder if he I'm wondering if he came out in a kimono because he won that off of another Japanese wrestler or something. But what it was actually, I think, my theory is because after when he comes to the ring, he then says about how much he loves his Honda. Yes. And so it was a pro Japanese motorcycle, pro Japanese thing. And the Harley Davidson people will be like, no, I like my Merc scooter. <laughs> it goes brum brum. I like it when it goes brum brum. And oh, they, they rev hard yeah. to the yeah. Honda line. Yeah, it's like Vuvuzelas at the 2010 World Cup. It was just a weird constant undercurrent. Yeah. So it was this installation of character into a division that was all about high spectacle and, and exciting matches. The Cruiserweight division is very often cited as one of the great achievements of the WCW golden years. And there is a lot of truth to that. Was it an achievement because it wasn't really, like, poked? Like, you know what I mean? It was just like, you two will have a match. Yeah. Well, that was what so much of Nitro was, really. The funny thing with Nitro was that it was still built around a wrestling car, which is often what a lot of WWE is nowadays. That it's just match, 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 match. Not really match, angle, 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 match. Match, angle, mm. angle, setting up a match. Match, followed by an angle. Which was what it was under the Crash TV WWE. That it was, for the most part, matches and then an occasional Hulk Hogan promo. Yeah, like, just variety. Just loosen it up, you know? Well, that's what Chris Jericho did. Bringing yes. in humour, bringing in feuds, bringing in a narrative arc that covered an eight-month period from him turning heel on Rey Mysterio, losing his temper and turning heel, all the way to this final point, which is him facing the guy that he'd embarrassed and taken away his, his identity. His heritage. And just laughed at him for it. And the match is being officiated by the guy that he kept screwing over on all <laughs> all steps of the way. And mocking his dead dad. Yeah. But through it all by hook and crook, or literally crook in some instances, managing to hold on to the Cruiserweight title during all this mm. time. Then we get to the match, and the match is it's a good match. The lack of a crowd reaction is a problem. It feels a little bit disjointed. I do remember when Chris Jericho said that when he came to the WWE, it really was like his finishing school as a performer. And I can see where he's coming from. Like, one of the things that was a problem when he came to WWE was in his big match a couple of weeks after his debut, because they put him in against The Rock on the mic, and then they had him go after, like, Road Dog and a few other people. But this was like... They gave him the match with The Rock, and that didn't really work out and that led to his descent down the card for a while yeah and he said there was this one big problem was like the rock hit him with the right hand and jericho went down to the mat and sold and what you should be doing when you're in the wwe is they're into the bump and feed and keeping up a more fast pace mm, mm. keeping it more frenetic fast pace because you know the matches are usually shorter anyway so Rock had hit him with the right hand, turned around expecting Jericho to be right back up and he can hit him again, get the crowd warmed up and more excited. Yeah. But instead, Jericho was doing the traditional WCW method of selling hits, laying down on the mats. And then that got him in real big trouble. It sounds like if NXT was a thing back then, he probably would have gone there. Well, that's exactly what they would have done, yeah. Then Vince Man basically took him aside and and really gave him a bollocking. I don't know if you've read the book, but he's like, do you know how to wrestle? <sighs> do you know anything? This is not, I was promised a certain thing and you are not it. I mean, you can leave now if you want to. Yeah. Like literally saying this can be it. And it's like Vince, you know, you read into it and you realize this is kind of 
abuse in a way because then at the end of the night he gives Jericho a hug and he's like you know I only say this because I care and it's all that fucking psychological <laughs> torture sort of thing getting a bit little Mo and Trevor but it was like trying to bring him down like break him down so they can build him back up which is what he does you know that was why I knew everything that happened to Sasha and Bailey when they came in and everyone's like why are they being mistreated it's like he's breaking them down so that then when they get built back up they'll appreciate him for it that's his line of thinking yeah and if they do but that was clear. It was like, when I saw it, it was like, yeah, there's obvious, there's an obvious reason that Jer- Vince is doing this. And, you know, we've just recently seen the NXT champion literally lose a match on Raw. To, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to. On a debut. So, you know, he's doing he's doing the tough love thing with the uh, carrying cross, it would look like. Mm. And so then he said to Jericho that he was going to have to run all of his matches through X-Pac. Yeah. Backstage, the X-Pac was kind of seen as the gold standard. Like, when they were testing new guys, even when he was the 1-2-3 kid, the test was put them up against X-Pac, 1-2-3 kid, Sean Mortman. If they can't have a good match with them, then they can't have a good match with anyone, was the logic yeah. that it went by. That was like what scuppered Dean Douglas when he came along, that they put him with Sean Mortman and Scott Hall, and they didn't care for him, and that kind of screwed him. <laughs> yeah for life basically and he was through working with x-pac and also specifically through working with pat patterson that he learned the in-house wwe style and you see it to this day for the most part this is still serious cruiserweight wrestler chris jericho in the ring for the most part i was expecting yeah from my memory a lot more character a lot more cowardice a lot more expressiveness and he was still doing things like that although i don't recall him doing the move that i knew he did around this time which was the one foot pin and the bicep pose. I don't remember him actually doing it in this match. Ah, no, he did do it. He didn't do the bicep. Okay, yeah. It's funny because this is a this is a cruiserweight match that is built on story, and nearly all of them are just built on the match. And unfortunately, it's a story in front of a crowd that probably hasn't been following the story very much. Yeah, I, I, that <laughs> really, really. If they'd held off a month, yeah, this would have been far better. Yeah, but it's still good for what it was. They they executed all their moves pretty well. Yeah, okay, yeah. Better's probably the wrong word. Mm. Appreciated. Like, the atmosphere would have been far hotter. Mm. It's just a shame, really. It's like the culmination of, as you say, a really long build with Dean, with Hoovy. But it's just in front of people that just don't care. It's just really annoying. There are pockets of fans that are cheering around. The, yeah, mm. So you can tell that those that are actually following the product. And there was some some screams for Hooventude, you know, because Hooventude yeah. was... I mean, Hooventude at this point was a great performer. He was having some of the most exciting matches on TV. And he was truly full of character. Oh, yeah. But my God, I mean, you know, we talk about... In recent episodes, we've talked about Eddie Gilbert and, and Buddy Landell. You know, Hooventude Greer was a good partner for oh, those two. Oh, God. Yeah. The stories you heard about him. I think when he was, like, angry he couldn't take his girlfriend out to ringside in WWE, and he's like, well, Booker T gets to do it. He's like, well, Charmel's a proper valet. Your girlfriend's just some woman. <laughs> and it was King Booker at the time, so she was literally Queen Charmel. It makes no... I, I don't... Some people, I just don't understand the way they're wired. Like, mm. push limits yeah. way too far, and like, have yeah. such an overinflated opinion of themselves, which, when you're an athlete, I guess you have to have, but... 
it's how you control it and like yeah. ap- apply it correctly, I guess. 98 maskless Juventud Guerrero was his peak, and he was only be like 23 or 24 at this point. So you think of a bit of a how much of a waste that was. He still worked. I remember he did the uh, World Cup of Wrestling mm. with Rey Mysterio, I think, and he put the mask bat- back on and. Uh, he sort of had the classic Mexican luchador portly belly at this point. That <laughs> was a bit unfortunate. So he's still going. He's still getting work. But he'll never mean as much as he did in 98. And this feud with Chris Jericho was really kind of his peak. Then he followed it up with an awesome series of matches from my memory with Billy Kidman. You know, we've got our prospective lists of matches we want to talk about. And before you pick this one, I think I would have probably... Picked a Juventud Guerrero versus Billy Kidman match from 98 because they were like, I remember Power Slam Magazine's writers mm. had one of their matches on Nitro Dan as their match of the year for 98. So, you know, 98 was a big year for wrestling. There's a lot going on. And, you know, another great match that a lot of people love. You had some great matches with Blitzkrieg, who's another guy that we should talk about, a great potential wrestler. Yeah. A guy who could have been a star and ended up just leaving wrestling pretty soon after that match. And he would just have these really exciting explosive matches and his moves were cool. He did a 450 splash. His hoovy driver looked deadly. And oftentimes, because it was WCW, he was allowed to make it look a bit more deadly than the Michinoku driver equivalents of yeah. his hoovy driver. And he does it in this match. And another thing that I think is really interesting to compare is obviously when Jericho moved to WWF, he then enters the land of the giants. And Jericho was yeah. like, well, now Jericho's not that small at all compared to most. You know, you look at him against Orange Cassidy. It's, yeah, well, re- wrestling shrunk around him as he mm. stayed in it. But the cruiserweight division worked for him as the, the top heel because he was physically, he's noticeably bigger than Juventud Guerrero. He's got a few inches in height on Dean Malenko as well. He's basically as big as a cruiserweight could be. Yeah. And so then, I mean, straight after this show, I think the next Nitro, he wins the television title. Off of Stevie Ray, who's standing in for the injured Booker T. Oh, okay. And that started his run with the television title. And everyone saw that as like, okay, so this is the logical ascent. And he'll probably win the United States title in 99. And then he'll be in the main event scene. Mm. Also around this time, he turned down a chance to be in the NWO. I know that much. Yeah, he'd have been lost in the shuffle. So he has the television title run. And that includes him calling out Goldberg. And that should have had a payoff match at World War Three, And it never happened. Mm. It just was an angle. And then he drops the TV title quite unceremoniously to Conan. And then he gets into a feud with Perry Saturn about who gets to wear a dress to the ring. Oh. And that just turns Perry Saturn into like a transvestite gimmick. And that was really it for him. His last real part of the WCW storyline was he was involved in uh, the US title tournament and lost to Scott Steiner fairly easily, I think. Okay. And then he was gone. And then he turned up on WWF TV. So really when people were excited, I mean, the thing that everyone always remembers Jericho's debut and it's listed as one of the great debuts of all time. But Jericho himself says it's not that good a debut when you look at the whole package. My my promo goes on too long. I sort of stutter over myself and I'm pulling these funny comical comedy heel faces yeah. up against The Rock. And what they obviously wanted to present me as was like an equal to The Rock. And I went too far down the looking silly and comedic route. Mm. That he always cites the fact that the first poster for WrestleMania 2000, the people on the poster were the big show, Triple H, The Rock, and him. Yeah. And then when it comes to WrestleMania 2000, the four that are in the main event 
are the other three and Mick Foley. Yeah, who had uh, who they unretired, hadn't they? Because like, was it the Cactus Jack Triple H retirement stipulation like a few months before? Yeah, yeah. But obviously they would have probably had that all planned out anyway. And um, by that time, Jericho was babyface turned in the uh, in the Intercontinental title scene with Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit. So he was in a mid card, but he wasn't pushed to the main event scene, which it seemed like they were almost preparing for him. And you look at that debut and the amount of spectacle and pomp they put behind it. Yeah. And that's why people remember it. And I think the other reason people really remember it, and it's still, I, I will often rewatch. I don't watch the promo and everything, uh, but I do watch just the build up to it, the countdown, the light show that they would do between the countdown and the actual music starting, which they got rid of a few weeks later. When the music starts up, and, you know, it's the music that he kept basically for the whole of his run, although the lyrics were a little different the first time. Mm. When you hear, break the walls down, and then the name Jericho appears, and the crowd loses their shit. I mean, we're already on a detour. We haven't talked much about this match. We've talked about everything around it this much. But but, but that's but that's kind of indicative of the match itself, in a way, is it not? Like, it's more about what was going on around it. I think we also, it would have meant more to us if we'd rewatched the entire six months of build-up of the storyline as well. Yeah. We're coming in cold, and I think we're expecting a different Jericho to the one that we saw. From from my memory of the Jericho WCW character, it's not quite complete at this point. Yeah. His voice is kind of deeper and everything, which surprised me. That sort of, ah, Chris Jericho, ah! <laughs> voice the, especially the one that he employs when he's in commentary in AEW. Mm. <laughs> was really what he brings when he's in, when he comes to the WWE. Never! Ever! And all that sort of stuff. I, I, I'll give him a pass on AEW purely because he was trying to create sound in a soundless world. When Jericho's done in the ring, I think he should be not necessarily a regular commentator, but I think he should be a frequent commentator. Like, my ideal situation, because I'm, I'm like everyone else, and I don't think JR is necessarily built for a three-hour show anymore, have, like, your main two of Excalibur and Tony Schiavone, and then a revolving third member of the commentary team. Yeah. And sometimes it can be Taz, sometimes it can be JR, sometimes it can be Chris Jericho. That would be how I would do it. And it's funny hearing Tony Schiavone in, in this match as well, and he's like, he's not not caring yet, but he's obviously going to get there. Mm. <laughs> Bobby Heenan never quite worked in WCW, because of the, uh, especially when the NWO thing happened, because he could no longer be the heel guy. Yeah. So he just became an, obs- an observer and almost an expert. It was funny, they would always have Bobby Heenan do, would be to summarise how the match had gone. At the end of the match, they'd do the replays and it'd be Bobby Heenan that would describe what he is. And he doesn't, like, he's not shitting on the product like JR can do occasionally for AEW. But there is a sense of an indif- an increasing indifference. And also, that that was the common thing with the common criticism of Nitro at the time would be when there'd be a Cruiserweight match on. The commentators would be talking about anything else but this match. They'd be talking about whatever was to do with the NWO. Well, yeah, like this that. is the thing. The, the Cruiserweight division was pure just just content it wasn't for anything it didn't do anything it wasn't to promote what they thought the stars were well no it was given prominence it, and it made stars mysterio guerrera malenko jericho uh, eddie guerrero billy kidman they created plenty of stars and they were getting reactions you've got to realize this this sturgis rally is a is an account to what you're used to Okay, maybe maybe I'm like plugging in more to like late Russo when it was just like, oh, let's do some wacky shit in the main event. Oh well, you can't apply Russo logic to anything. True. Well, you just put Russo and logic together in a sentence, which in itself is um, 
Bit of a misnomer, but never mind. <laughs> and something he couldn't write. You know, a <laughs> sentence. You've got extra sass today. I'm glad it's like moved away from me to like Vince Russo. But, uh, but overall, I'd personally say, fine match. Crowd, crowd let it down. It's a shame that this was basically the end of the Chris Jericho storyline as, as far as the crowd that he was in front of. Hoovenstu going, I mean, the, the final spot where... Malenko, who's sort of trying to be fair, but at the same time clearly doesn't like Chris Jericho, and Jericho pushes it. Mm. <laughs> it is funny, actually, when you have the special guest referee be part of the story, how much are they part of the story and how much they have to sort of sink into the background when needed. A really good example of that, actually, that I can give is Triple H's work as the guest referee in the Daniel Bryan-John Cena SummerSlam match. You basically forget that he's there, but... Then, when Randy Orton comes out and they do the heel turn and the establishment of the authority, that was what he was there for. But I did think Triple H did a really good job of not being the centre of attention until he had to be the centre of attention. Yes. And with this, there's like a few spots here and there that establish Malenko ain't going to take Jericho's shit, like when he pulls him by the hair, which the camera completely misses. Mm. I can't remember if it's which of the one of the commentators they they do the best they can in terms of like going, oh look, 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 look what just happened. He gets slapped by Jericho at one point as yeah. well, but he also at times admonishes Hoovy Guerrero as well. A Hoovy does a hair pull quite early on in the final spot. He pulls Hoovy off the ropes because I guess it was meant to be he was like the only referee that ever enforces that count when they're climbing the ropes. Yeah. They always do that. It's like, to what purpose is this? Nothing has ever happened that someone's, you know, got in trouble for it. No one cares about that rule. That's even more so than, like, the choking against the ropes rule, which Vince makes them actually enforce Mm. in WWE. So it's a really cool spot, though, when he kicks Malenko in the face. Malenko turns around into a charging Humanito Guerrero. And propels him up into a Hurricane Rana onto Jericho off the top rope. It's made to look pure instinctive as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is hard to do in those sort of very orchestrated spots. Mm. They cu- it came off very, very well for like... Mm. not I wouldn't say the most complex finish I've ever seen by any stretch of the imagination, but any time like, you have to like A to B to C to D to do a finish. Well, you've got to think of where Jer- Malenko needs to be standing when, where, from what pace and at what point... Yeah. Guerrero needs to start to run how Malenko needs to throw him how Jericho has to catch him I mean it's very often the case with those sort of leaping hurricane runners that aren't just from like the standing point on the top rope that their legs are very often quite far away from their opponent's shoulders but the opponent has to kind of catch it and act as if this is enough to propel them forward Mm. it is funny how often the hurricane runners employed in like (laughs) like Black Widow it's like one of her key moves is is like these luchador moves she does spinning head scissors and hurricane runners in the in the black widow movie it's always seen as something like because obviously like she's a female uh protagonist taking on mm. a mixed bag gender wise of like rivals it's seen as a, like a move that women can do to men like realistically yeah. but also it's unfortunately some of it's like the male gaze and the kinkiness of it yeah yeah their move just happens to involve them wrapping their thighs around the, the head of a man mm. In order to get to it, in order to do it. Yes. You know? I, I was trying to uh, steer away from that, but you, you're sadly right. I went, I went straight into yeah, it. I was going to say. I went you, straight into the skin. <laughs> you were the big Sam of, like, conversation mm. there. Mm. We've talked about doing series where we talk about one particular wrestler's narrative arc from the start of their career, that at least that we can find on television towards the end of it. 
And of all the potential candidates out there, I would say that Chris Jericho would be a really strong one. That you could try and find old tapes of him in the territories, then find him stuff of him as Lionheart in Mexico. And then we could go from that into his WAR, ECW, Smoky Mountain phase, then to WCW and then WWE, and then finally AEW. That'd be fascinating to do. It would take us a fuckload of time to do it, so... But we'd have, you're right, we'd have so much variety in terms of where he's been. And the sort of wrestling that he does. This is the cruiserweight style of wrestling that Jericho changes to his WWE mode. So you're seeing elements of it, but you're not seeing the full Jericho that we know now. Yeah. But it is funny seeing what's there and what isn't there. He is, I've heard it said before, I think I've even used it in this podcast. He's very much wrestling's Madonna, isn't he? Well, he always attributed that to The Undertaker. Mm. Uh, it's funny no one ever tries to say they're wrestling David Bowie. I don't know what it is that they see more in common with Madonna than they do Bowie. Well, for me, it's a generational thing, obviously. Madonna was changing more around when I remember growing up and not caring about pop music, but being more aware of it. Well, yeah, I, I used to mock it, though, a little bit. I guess that was more my... I've never been a Madonna fan, but you know, I can't deny there was probably some sort of sexism within it as well at the time. My line used to be, what people call reinvention, I call dyeing your hair a different colour. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it's not like Jericho for the most part. I mean, there are moves in this match that he still does to this day. I mean, the spot of him catching a Hurricane Rana and turning it into a Walls of Jericho, he'll do that. I'm sure he probably did that to Orange Cassidy during their feud. It always works when he's the bigger guy as oh, well, yes. working yeah. off of the base. Whenever he's working a heel, he'll probably try and do that spot. And it's often when he's working a heel that he'll turn it into the old lion tamer as opposed to the walls of Jericho. Or if he's a uh, like big match occasions, like his match with Neville, as he was known then, on... I can't remember what card it was. I think it was like that Beast in the East thing. But yeah, he used it, it then. Yeah, yeah, that is right. He did do it in Japan. Well, that was a tribute to his Japan days as well. And, yeah, so we're seeing elements of it, but like I said, one of the key things is we're seeing big guy Jericho against smaller guys, and then when he comes to WWE, he has to change it up and be and work, because the size differences are usually that he's the Hooventude and the other guys are the Jericho in that situation. Yeah, oh, well, it is the land of the giants, as you mentioned earlier. And also, yeah, more often than not, Jericho's been the face in, well, at least... The, I would say like 60% of his career probably after this was when he was in WWE was him as a face and so he then has to do it in a different way he has to sell and he has to do more spectacular moves mm. it's funny here he does the double powerbomb which I remember was a spot he tried to keep going in WWE when he came in and kind of dropped that one as well because it's, it's a, again much easier to do when you're the bigger guy and then when he's fighting against all these different guys who are like much taller I'm sure and- I've seen footage of him do it to China in his early days well, yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. In early WWE, he would do it. I remember him doing it to Road Dog in like his first big feud. Was him? He did the powerbomb, and then he did the second one, and through the second one went through a table and got himself DQ'd in his debut match. Okay. On SmackDown, it's worth a watch, but I would say don't watch it in isolation. Watch it with the whole builder. <laughs> don't do what we did. <laughs> Follow what Lorcan in '98 did. With he had the right idea. Exploit your parents' misery. <laughs> Split your parents up. <laughs> what should you tell listeners to do if they want to get in touch with you? People can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of in-ring participants in this match that were actually wrestlers. 
My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Ayatollah, N for the N in the middle of rock and roller. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. You can get in touch with the show at lmtwisepod at gmail.com. LMTWisePod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. For our next episode, assuming there are no five-star matches in the interim, we will be talking a regular Let Me Tell You Something. And for that one, we'll be discussing something that maybe we should do more often, which is double teaming. Not in that way, you dirty bastard! <laughs> if you thought about Eiffel Towering and a certain video involving a certain Leicester City manager's son, then you're a dirty, dirty boy. We're talking about double team maneuvers with tag teams. Wrestling tag teams. We have more than a count of five to get our points out. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Now it's just your own dirty mind. Yep. Hoisted by my own petard there. (laughs) Oh, get your petard out of the way. Anyway, if that's a petard. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) What's the thing that Peter Pan uses to fight Captain Hook? That's your petard. Oh, what? That tiny little... Yeah, that tiny little... Yep, that tiny little... Hey, hey, it's, co- it's cold in here. I'm under a lot of pressure at work. I've, I've had a few wines. Leave me alone. Just give it a minute, all right? It's the hottest week of the year. Shut up. <laughs> but until then, we'll probably keep talking in the in, in the entire week in between, but we're just going to put a stop on the record at this point. But until then, my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.